Following midterm elections in the United States, the Republicans will claim the House, Democrats retain the Senate, and several governorships will change hands. The Russian retreat from Kherson is a major victory for Ukraine and what is in store for the conflict during the winter months. And in other news, German courts require the state of Berlin to rerun local elections. Welcome to Inside Israel News, your home for unbiased and thorough analysis of Israeli news politics, current events in the Middle East, and world news. Or as the internet trolls say, mouthpiece of the Zionist conspiracy, spokesman for the elders of Zion, highly paid propagandist of the Mossad. Yeah, no. This is Inside Israel News. I'm your host, Isaac Kite. Welcome back, insiders, the highly erudite, well-educated, and well-informed audience of this podcast. If you're listening, that means that you want to know everything, and I do my best to make sure that you stay informed. Uh, this, uh, this from your gregarious Vulcan, with my facts and figures, rationality and reason, in a time of utter insanity, uh, a world gone mad, right? Well, more madness, uh, and, and not just insanity, but also anger. Uh, U.S. midterms have concluded, mostly, kind of, sort of, well, not really. They're still counting in California, and Arizona, and Nevada, and <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, we're, we're well over a week, um, headed on toward two weeks now, and there are races where we still don't know who the winner is likely to be, I should say. And sometimes there are those races that come down to 100 votes this way or that way, and it's difficult to tell right to the last minute, and you have to wait till very last ballot is counted, and then there's a recount. Uh, this stuff happens, but um, not like this. This is utterly ridiculous. Okay, India is the largest democracy in the world. They have something like 400 million votes cast every time they vote, and they're able to count their elections and count their ballots in a day. Okay, if India can do that, now, Indian people are pretty smart, so, I mean, <laughs> it's a good thing. Uh, pretty capable people, so I, I, I don't have uh, anything against them. I'm just saying if India can do 400 million votes, I think America could handle, you know, a quarter of that in 48 hours. Okay, uh, dragging out the election counting like this just makes everyone suspicious. It eliminates whatever faith there is in the elections, and uh, it just makes everyone suspicious. Nevertheless, the American midterms have at least theoretically ended, and uh, there have been some significant changes. Republicans have gained a majority in the House of Representatives, for one thing. Republicans needed to gain just six or seven seats. Uh, looks like Republicans are going to gain much more than that. Now uh, the GOP is going to have 221 or 222 seats, depending on a couple of close races. And that uh, is more than the 218 seats the GOP needs in order to have a majority. So uh, that's... That's pretty much said and done already. Congressman Jim Jordan has announced that the House will be investigating the Hunter Biden affairs and uh, all of the corruption that surrounds the Biden family. Uh, so there's there's already that that's that's coming. Uh, in any case, the Republicans gained the House. Now, the Senate was a little bit of a different matter, uh, as I discussed um, in the various articles that I wrote uh, before the election, and especially the red wave and minority voters, the 
uh, Senate is, map was not very good for Republicans. Republicans were defending uh, six seats, uh, five seats without incumbents, and at the same time trying to gain Georgia and Arizona and Nevada. So that was a lot. Uh, and it basically it just didn't happen in Pennsylvania. Combination of a bad candidate and a very poorly run gubernatorial campaign. Uh, and uh, that uh, led to a GOP loss. So uh, the GOP lost the seat in Pennsylvania and uh, Georgia's going to a runoff. No one got a majority. The runoff will be in December. And that will determine whether a if the Republican Herschel Walker should win uh, the Senate will remain 50 50, which means it's in Democrat control because Vice President Kamala Harris has the casting vote that determines control of the Senate when it's evenly divided or uh, Anthony Warnock will win and the Democrats will have a narrow 51 seat majority and won't need Kamala Harris's casting vote to have a majority. Either way, um, the Senate is going to be in Democrat hands, uh, at least at, at present, unless we unless something should change. Uh, but the way the election results are, that's that's where things stand at the moment. So we'll see what happens with the campaign in Georgia. Uh in terms of governorships, uh, incumbent governors, Republican governors are leaving office in Massachusetts and Maryland. Both of those states were expected to have Democrat governors. And surprise, surprise, Democrats gained those governorships. But those are, are deep blue states where it was uh, kind of the, the exception that proves the rule for them to have Republican governors. And now they have Democrat governors uh, in terms of uh, other states. The rest it, that were competitive, it was one for one. It looks like the Democrats have gained uh, the governorship of Arizona, where sadly Carrie Lake was defeated in uh, just a ridiculously run election, uh, voting machines breaking down in Republican neighborhoods and people being turned away. It's not clear that would have had any impact on the election itself. But let's just say if that kind of stuff hadn't happened, we'd have less reason to be concerned about the e efficacy of the elections. I mean, you know, could could somebody try, just try a little bit, try to make the elections look like they're on the up and up. OK, <laughs> just try. Uh, and uh, Republicans gained the governorship of Nevada. So uh, that's that's a one for one. So like I said, in terms of governorships, the Democrats gained the governorships that they were expected to. And uh, we've traded governorships in Arizona and Nevada. That's uh, that's where the governorships happen. Uh, other big news. Donald Trump is running for president. You heard it first here on this podcast. Well, maybe not. <laughs> in any case, uh, when I covered the CPAC conference in Texas in 2021, uh, we had uh, audio directly from Donald Trump then. And my analysis at the time was that Donald Trump would run for president. And a funny thing happened. Donald Trump announced he's running for president. So uh, there we are. Right. Uh, we're going to have a, a second candidacy for Donald Trump. Uh, I'm going to discuss a little bit more on that particular topic in just a minute. Uh, because before, before I cover that, I really want to cover what went wrong with the midterms or why the midterms were what they were before I go into that. So let's dive into that for a minute um, and see what that looks like. So a number of criticisms have been raised. I'm going to kind of go over those criticisms, give my own take on them. All right. Uh, there was no unified GOP message. Uh, the House attempted something like the contract with America, but it wasn't well 
it wasn't put around. I mean, the the media didn't pick it up. Obviously, we don't expect them to. Uh, but for some reason, it just didn't get out there very well. In any case, uh, you know, you have to have a message. You have to have something that you're about. Right. And you can't just say, well, inflation bad. You have to come up with something a little more sophisticated than that. And the GOP just did not have a message that really got out there nationally. I want to say nationally because I'm going to, there were some places where GOP message did resonate very well. In New York, for example, uh, Lee Zeldin, who was running for governor, made it a very close race with Kathy Hochul, uh, the the governor, the incumbent governor who took over after uh, Mario Cuomo's resignation, uh, Andrew Cuomo's resignation, excuse me. I'm showing my age there, aren't I? Uh, I remember when Mario Cuomo was, when you thought of New York, you thought of Mario Cuomo uh, before the days of uh, the good old... Uh, <laughs> the good old New York uh, of the 90s uh, when Rudy Giuliani cleaned that place up. Anyway, uh, Lee Zeldin put out a good message in New York uh, and really energized New York voters and turned out a huge number. Uh, now, he didn't win, but for not winning, I think he gets the MVP uh, for the GOP in this race because he was able to turn off turn out enough voters and bring enough excitement throughout the state that the GOP gained four seats in the House of Representatives and defended a closely held seat. So we're talking about a major gain for the GOP in a very deep blue state, right? New York is not a place you think of when you think of Republican gains. So Lee Zeldin's message worked very well. Lee Zeldin's uh, energy and his uh, candidacy worked very well. Likewise, down in Florida, which I'm going to come to in a minute, okay, um, there are a couple of issues where the GOP just struck the wrong chord. The GOP was doing very well on immigration, uh, illegal immigration, crime, and inflation. And they needed to have a more uniform message on border security, how we would fight inflation, things of that nature. Okay, but there were a couple of issues where some Republicans, not all, but some Republicans really took the wrong tone. Uh, on Ukraine, for example, uh, some Republicans are out there, you know, trash talking Ukraine, saying that the U.S. shouldn't be supporting Ukraine. We're risking World War Three. Uh, I've talked a lot about it here on the podcast. It's going to be the subject of the next segment after I'm done talking about the U.S. midterms. Uh, defending Ukraine, helping Ukraine defend itself is definitely in U.S. national interest. And so for Republicans to be out there kind of not supporting Ukraine, you, Republicans are usually strong on national security. And so it just felt like a lot of people saw that and it just made the GOP look like clowns. Like uh, we're, we're for national security, but we're against helping Ukraine defeat Russia. How does that work now? You know, so... Uh, that was a big uh, fail for the GOP. They also didn't handle the student debt situation very well. Uh, they, the Yes, uh, Joe Biden's student debt forgiveness plan was a vote-buying scheme, for sure. And uh, he was definitely out to try to motivate certain voters to, uh, to vote his way with that. But the way the GOP handled it was very callous just out there, you know, Oh, if you borrowed, you pay it back. And, uh, I remember one person, you know, just out there, you know, well, these green haired rich kids working at Starbucks and, and, you know, they're, they've got their women's studies degrees or their, or their, you know, art history degree, and they don't know what they're doing and this kind of thing. Uh, actually 
those aren't the people who have student debt. Uh, the rich kids, mommy and daddy paid off their student debt. The people who have the student debt are largely working class people who wanted to get a better education because they were told to. Everyone said, you know, if you want a good education, you have to go to college. And they did what they were told. They went to college. The government, through Sally May, that's your government, you know, the, the one with the Republicans and the Democrats, Republican presidents and Democrat presidents, Republican congresses and Democrat congresses, all of them supported that, um, pushed, uh, you know, loan, basically loan guarantees or subsidies. Some of these loans are subsidized. 92% of student debt is held by the federal government and managed by the federal government. <clears throat> so it is a federal problem. And saying that uh, just callously, oh, oh, you know, suck it up. It's your debt. That didn't strike a very good tone. I know a lot of people under 40 who, even if they didn't have student debts, just thought the Republicans sounded ridiculous. Um, and even over that, I mean, a lot of undecided voters, right? Uh, I wrote about undecided voters. It, it looked in the polls like undecided voters were breaking for the GOP. Something brought them back. You know, something turned their minds. Yeah, that, that was it. So there were a couple of issues there where the GOP just did not sound good. You don't have to be for student loan forgiveness to have a little compassion. Come at an issue and say, look, you know, we understand that a lot of people got student loans thinking that these college education, these college degrees would do something for them. And they did not. That, uh, you know, this this whole thing was a scheme, essentially, to subsidized left-wing universities and put a lot of money in the hands of left-wing college professors. That's how uh, you have people like Elizabeth Warren who could be out there and get paid $400,000 a year to teach one class. It, you know, it's like, wow, that's, uh, that's a lot of money, right? Okay, so, you know, you could say that. It's, look, we, we understand people are struggling. Uh, we don't think that forgiveness is the right path. Right. Even that. I mean, put some other ideas on the table. Uh, matching payments. Right. If you make a, a payment of any kind on your student loan, we, we think the government should match it. That payment up to a certain amount. Something. Give some relief to people. Uh, look at their circumstances. The thing is, with a lot of people who have student debt, so that the one category are a lot of working class people. The other category are public servants. Now, I know a lot of public servants are left leaning. And so from the Republican Party's perspective, they're not people who would vote Republican, okay, to begin with. So doing anything for those voters doesn't sound like it, you need to, you know, not, not an interest group you'd want to pursue, okay? But they are people that, they have a lot of public support, right? Teachers, college professors, and I don't mean just like big university professors, but okay, local colleges, community college, junior college uh, teachers, uh, you know, high school teachers, elementary school teachers, so uh, counselors get their, you know, their degree in, in sociology and, and they, they study uh, uh, mental health and they just kind of, you know, try to help people. Social work degrees, basically. Uh, you get a lot of these people out there. They got their degrees. They provide a very important service to the to the community. If our teachers, our counselors, uh, other public servants of various kinds, and the government was supposed to do, pay off their loans after ten years if they worked in these public professions, but they weren't doing that. Uh, also, people don't know, you know, the your Congress, Republican and Democrat. 
change the law so that you cannot include these student loans in bankruptcy. Right. So people who have them cannot get out of them. Uh, the government was literally suing a woman who is dying of cancer. She was dying of cancer, was trying to default on her student loans, and the government was literally suing her to uh, force her to pay. I kid you not. So these are issues where the GOP could have struck a more compassionate tone, a more perspicacious tone, and instead they just sounded callous and silly. And uh, when members of Congress don't understand what vital U.S. national interests are, you kind of ask, what are you doing there? You know, when Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz knows what vital U.S. interests are. Ted Cruz knows that the U.S. has to support Ukraine. Okay, now, again, should we send $50 billion at a go to Ukraine? That's not necessarily uh, a good thing either. Now, that would have been an angle to take with it. You know, okay, so we're supporting Ukraine, but where's this money going? Right, the United States gives about $4 billion a year in military aid to Israel. That's just $4 billion, and the Israelis... By, you know, spend that money in the U.S., buying mostly U.S. equipment so, you know, from U.S. manufacturers. And Israel is a vital ally and protects a lot of U.S. interests in the Middle East. All of those bad guys that Israel keeps pinned down would be attacking the United States and our allies in Europe if Israel were not there holding them back. Okay, And incidentally, also our allies in the Middle East. So uh, if you want the Saudis to stay in power and not to be replaced by, say, the bin Ladens, you know, you, you help Israel keep the terrorists busy. OK, well, uh, OK, so Israel gets that money and we get a lot of bang for that buck. But 50 billion dollars to Ukraine? I don't know. I mean, if that money is going to buy arms here that we ship over there. OK, but if we're just giving money to the government of Ukraine, do we really know where that money is going? OK, those are ways you can attack these issues. All right. So enough, you know, perseverating on these particular issues. I'm just making the point that it made the Republican Party look ridiculous, like they didn't know what they were talking about and amateurish, childish. And the student loan issues made them look mean and callous. You've got to be careful about looking mean in American politics. Nobody likes a meanie. There's a way to give people the cold, hard truth without making it sound mean. Right. Sometimes you, you don't sugarcoat, but you do have to be honest with people that hey, they, they're tough times or what have you. But you you have to make sure you're not being mean. Right. We're Americans. We're compassionate people. OK. Another issue, redistricting and incumbency. These were big ones. And so I want to say I, I really resonate with these. Uh, the, the newly drawn districts in a number of states, especially blue states, but even in red states as well, no matter what you do. You can use the software and try to manipulate them. Oh, this will be a Republican. Oh, this will be a Democrat district. You never quite know exactly what's going to happen. And when it comes to swing districts, it can be kind of complicated who turns out and what have you. So the Democrats, for example, picked up six seats in the House this year, even though Republicans gained more than, you know, obviously gained enough seats. They flipped enough seats that those six gains did not prevent the GOP from gaining the majority. Right. Uh, but. It's just that there are a lot of shifts back and forth. So if the GOP had held those six seats, then they would have a wider majority, right? 
But they didn't. And the GOP flipped a number of Democrat seats, uh, three seats in Florida, four seats in New York. Uh, in Michigan, we traded seats. The awesome, wonderful uh, John James candidate I have loved and supported for many years. I was so excited uh, to see him win a congressional seat. Such a talented man. So glad to see him in Congress. But the Democrats also picked up a seat in Michigan. So his flipping a seat meant nothing. The Democrats flipped a seat, too. So, you know, Michigan was a net zero for the GOP. You see what I'm saying? Uh, Iowa. Uh, Iowa is an interesting case study. Back in 2018, Iowa had one Republican who won the election. Right? Iowa had three Democrat districts. In 2020, the GOP gained two of those back. And now the GOP has gained the fourth one as well. So now Iowa in terms of the House of Representatives, is completely red. That, that's interesting. You know, the shift is on. So you, you see some of these districts going back and forth. Uh, redistricting certainly had an effect. Um, incumbency, right? Uh, and, oh, back to redistricting. So before redistricting comes what we call reapportionment, and that's where Congress sends uh, congressional seats to different places. Texas and Florida gained seats, both of them, right? So... You have uh, Texas now with 40 seats instead of 38, Florida with 30 instead of 28. So, you know, those seats go to those states, those states are red states. They're generally going to pick up, you know, Republicans are generally going to pick up seats. Uh, okay, number four, poor candidates. This one's a no-brainer. Unfortunately, this is the case. Now, the poor candidates people are talking about are in the Trump line. They're saying, well, Donald Trump foisted a bunch of bad candidates on the GOP. I don't see that in any way, shape, or form. Uh, the candidates that Donald Trump supported, generally speaking, were people who were going to uh, fight for their constituents, right? And there's no point in electing a Republican in a race when they act like the old school Republicans, when they have no spine, they don't represent their base, they don't do anything, right? Now, Democrats do. I mean, who wants to vote for a Democrat who doesn't do... Uh, support, you know, the Democrat base and do what they were elected to do. The difference is the Democrats do what they're elected to do, or rather they, they support their base. Uh, it's the Republicans who don't. Don't stand up for their base. Don't defend people. Wish they had some other group of people voting for them. Uh, and, you know, you, you, they just completely surrender on every issue, right? Well, that changed with Donald Trump. So something to be said there. Uh, but Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania just did not do the trick. Not a great candidate. Uh, he was polling well there for a while, but uh, you know, polls you have to take them with a grain of salt. It really did turn out. It really did come down to turnout, and obviously the Democrat turnout was much better in Pennsylvania. Now it was still competitive, and uh, the GOP can still be competitive in Pennsylvania in uh, statewide races, but uh, it just it just did not turn out for the GOP. On the other hand, very conservative candidate Ron Johnson, big supporter of Donald Trump, longtime favorite of conservatives in Wisconsin, won a narrow re-election. So that means that, you know, somebody who's very, very strong supporter of Trump, very conservative, managed to be re-elected. Uh, you know, in Arizona, Kerry Lake ran a great campaign, had a very exciting uh, candidacy for people on the right, uh, and it looks like the, the turnout models just do not favor her. And, uh, you know, I don't know. Arizona just voted to shoot itself in the foot. Like, I guess Arizonans like being poor. 
and uh, hiring high taxes. And, uh, you know, they, they voted for, you know, corrupt inside establishment person who doesn't actually care about anyone and is going to destroy the state's economy. Fine. I mean, I, I think, you know, that that's that's great for Texas. That's great for Florida. It's terrible for Arizona. So don't know what to tell you there. Uh, but those were very close races. GOP is still competitive there. In Nevada, it looked like Adam Laxalt had a good chance of winning, but he just narrowly came, uh, you know, came close, not quite as as well as he could have. Uh, and that's incumbency. To a large, to a large extent, incumbents won, for the most part. It was a good night for incumbents, generally speaking. So, redistricting and incumbency were certainly powerful. They certainly played their role. Um, poor candidates. There were a few. Honestly, there were a few candidates who could have been better, for sure. Uh, but that is a problem. I, I mean, you know, where, where do we get better candidates? Uh, I think a lot of the attacks on Herschel Walker are somewhat unfounded. I mean, he was sports personality. He has some personal issues, for sure. Uh, he's running against, uh, you know, this Warnock guy who's a, you know, basically an overt anti-Semite and has praised communist governments. I mean, this is a guy who shouldn't be in the main, you know, he shouldn't be in mainstream politics, right? How, how is this guy mainstream? He's extremely radical. How did this guy get elected to the Senate? Uh, only in quirky circumstances back in the, the 2020-2021 election period. Anyway, um, so there, there were a number of issues there, but Herschel Walker's not a terrible candidate. Uh, and he did really well in Georgia, came very close, fell just a little behind. Uh, we'll see how the runoff goes. The Libertarian candidate did win 2% of the vote. And I don't see Libertarians voting for Warnock. So if any of those people turn out in any numbers, uh, they could very quickly change that race. Uh, also a question of turnout. Uh, governor reelected in Georgia, Governor uh, Brian Kemp. Uh, has he's uh, lending his uh, GOTV machine or his GOTV efforts uh, to Walker for the runoff. So we'll see. Um, last but not least, mail-in voting and drop boxes. Big problem in this election. Uh, we don't know where those ballots come from. We don't know which ones are legitimate. We don't know if any of them are being dropped illegally by mules. So what do we know? What we know is that those are bad news for elections and that anywhere these drop boxes and mail-in voting is done, elections will have to be suspect. Uh, read Arizona and Nevada. So, you know, uh, this, is, this is an issue. Uh, Donald Trump in his announcement for uh, his candidacy said that uh, he wanted to see, you know, election uh, voting on election day with an ID. Uh, secure elections. That's how it's done in most of the world. Mail-in voting is almost non-existent in the in, among the democracies of the world, uh, so it need that needs to stop. So those are a number of the things that hamstrung the GOP. Nevertheless, the GOP has won a huge victory, taking control of the House uh, and with a comfortable enough margin, two twenty-one, two twenty-two. I mean, that means uh, it's close, four or five seats, but they'll be able to uh, control the House and prevent the Democrats from passing any new legislation. Well, as of January, there's a lot of stuff being discussed in the lame duck session that could be problematic. All right. Last thing uh, on this topic uh, from the midterms going forward into 2024 uh, is talking about Trump's path to victory, uh, the 2024 election. 
Now, I've written a little bit on politicalvanguard.com about this. Uh, you can read my articles there in the contributors section uh, on desktop. It's just below uh, the, the main headlines at the top. So just scroll down a little bit and you'll see contributors. Uh, on the mobile version, you'll have to scroll down a little ways, kind of halfway down. <laughs> but uh, you'll find the contributors section. Uh, you go all the way down on the mobile version and you will find Inside Israel News. So that's uh, another place that you can listen. Uh, in any case, uh, I have written a little bit on there and I will be writing some more uh, about uh, domestic politics there because I don't do a lot about domestic politics in America here on the podcast. If it weren't for the midterms, I really wouldn't be talking about a lot here. Uh, but, you know, it, it begs analysis. Um, in terms of the midterms and Israel, they're not going to have a major impact on Israel, pro or con. And uh, Republicans are strong supporters of Israel. Democrats are reasonably, they're, their support is weakening, but there are plenty of uh, pro-Israel Democrats. So uh, the results shouldn't be a big change in Congress. Uh, there are a lot of problems this administration has. So it'd be nice if that would change, but that's not something that was on the ballot. Uh, and uh, in terms of Bibi Netanyahu's government, probably not going to be any big issues between Israel and the United States. Uh, the relationship's going to be a little bit chillier than it was with Yair Lapid, but, um, you know, not much of a change. Uh, Bibi Netanyahu is well known in Washington. Uh, he's met all of these uh, political uh, leaders before, you know, so he'll, he'll do well. All right. Looking forward to 2024. So Donald Trump has announced his candidacy. At this point, he's basically won the GOP nomination as a matter, as a foregone conclusion. There's talk of, oh, could Ron DeSantis run against him or Neil Youngkin or somebody else? This is Donald Trump we're talking about, okay? He has a huge support base. He was able to blow out of the water people like Jeb Bush and... Uh, Kasich and, and all those guys, Rubio, he even beat Ted Cruz. OK, nobody's going to defeat him in a Republican primary even now. Um, so Donald Trump is already, you know, he's basically the de facto winner of the Republican primary as it stands. That said, uh, if someone does run against him, all they're going to do is waste their time and money. And Donald Trump's going to come out the other end as the nominee, having wasted some of his time and money going forward. Uh the Democrats are going to have to drag Joe Biden back. Uh, there's, they really have no one else they can go with. The main contenders looking at the Democrat nomination, if it were not Joe Biden, are Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg, who are recycled candidates from 2020, neither of whom ever really had any serious traction in terms of Democrats, let alone nationally. And they're both very radical. Uh, and Gavin Newsom, governor of California, again, radical, out of touch with American v voters. You know, it's California. It's he's, he's way out there on things. His lockdown policies were miserable and would come back to bite him in the tickets. But uh, he is a very charismatic speaker. I, I've met the man several times. I've heard him speak. Uh, he makes you feel good. He gives you good pep talk speech. Uh, his content doesn't really mean anything if you actually think about what he said we're gonna be great everything's gonna be good and then you know he's he kind of like well, by by raising taxes and driving businesses out of the state how does that make everything better oh no no everything's gonna be great i mean so you know it, it's kind of empty talk in any case none of those candidates are really viable the democrats just have no one else to lean on they have to make joe biden's incumbent uh 
status. They have to take advantage of his incumbency. That's really the only thing they have. He's deeply unpopular. About 60% of Americans don't want Biden to run again. About 60% American, of Americans don't want Donald Trump to run again. So they're both equally unpopular. And no one of them is more popular than the other. But what is Trump's path to victory? Uh, I'm going to write more about this on Political Vanguard. Essentially, you know, you, you look at the Electoral College now, the way it works in the U.S., and the way it's changed. Uh, Donald Trump comes in with 221 electoral votes, Biden 212. So you have a slight lead for Trump there. There are eight battleground states. Uh, they they have about 106 electoral votes among them. And, you know, Donald Trump has to win 49 and uh, he'll have a victory. You know, basically, he's looking for 50 electoral votes. It's not that hard. And in all of those states, he has proven competitive. Right. I mean, I just talked about, you know, in all those states, uh, there were close races in this last race. There's nothing to suggest that the GOP has lost any ground. Now, I did write about the red wave in minority voting, and it didn't really materialize in terms of GOP gains this year very well. But it did happen. OK, so this is the part I want to talk about because Ron DeSantis has come up several times. Ron DeSantis won Miami-Dade County. Right, he lost Miami-Dade County by several points last time in 2018, and he still won by about 33,000 votes. Note, though, that he and Rick Scott, uh, who ran for, for Senate that year, were both supported by Donald Trump. They were both part of the Trump revolution, if you will. And their, their candidacies were benefited significantly by Trump's endorsement and Trump's activity and the good, you know, the positive economic news in 2018 and what have you. Nevertheless, they both lost Miami-Dade County. This time, that was not the case. This time, Ron DeSantis won re-election by almost 20 points, right? Not just double digits, right? 20 points. And he won Miami-Dade County. There's this great video that's been going around. If you haven't seen it, go find it. Of uh, MSNBC when they put up the results for Miami-Dade County. And there were audible gasps among their, their news commentary staff. <sighs> oh, my God. You know, and, and uh, the commentators, like, oh, yeah, I know. Look at this. I mean, you know, Latino voters are shifting to the right. They didn't come all the way right, but they are shifting to the right. So, you know, that's where that has a huge impact. We're starting to see that happen. Very dangerous for the Democrats. As little bit by little bit, Latino voters and African-Americans, especially uh, black men, are starting to vote Republican in greater numbers. And that's very dangerous for the Democrats. In Texas as well, good numbers for uh, Republicans among Latinos and African-Americans in Texas as well. Now, you know, that's a significant part of the base and a significant part of the growing of the GOP. It's not everything, but uh, it is sign. it is a sign that things are, are changing there. If those demographics are more willing to vote for Donald Trump in the next election. That helps him. In any case, uh, he has a competitive election coming up for sure. Uh, it's probably going to be against Biden. If the Democrats choose another candidate, they probably won't win. Uh, this is going to be interesting because it is only the sixth time in American history, if, if both candidates are nominated, it will be only the sixth time in American history that there have been consecutive presidential elections with exactly the same candidates, right? And an interesting thing happens here. I know what you're thinking. Slow down. 
<laughs> if you're like me, you're like, but Isaac, which ones were they? And what happened? I've got you. Slow down. Uh, <laughs> if your brain runs 100 miles an hour like mine, you're already there. If not, then, you know, now you're there because I just mentioned it. Um, in 1796, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, John Adams won. In 1800, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, Thomas Jefferson won. Right? 1824, Andrew Jackson and uh, John Quincy Adams. Now, there were also major candidacies by Henry Clay and, and uh, other, you know, but those were the two, the top two candidates. Let's put it that way. 1828, Andrew Jackson versus John Quincy Adams. Andrew Jackson won. All right. Uh, 1888, Grover Cleveland, incumbent president, right, running against uh, Benjamin Harrison. Benjamin Harrison won. Narrowly, but he won. Uh, 1892, same candidates, Grover Cleveland won and won a second non-consecutive term. So the only true historical precedent here looks pretty good for Donald Trump. Now, the other two occasions, uh, William Jennings Bryan ran against uh, William McKinley twice and lost. But Bryan was he was a radical uh, silver coin candidate in uh, 1896 and he got trounced by McKinley, and when he ran again in 1900, he wasn't really a serious candidate. Uh, it was the same with Adlai Stevens and Adlai Stevenson and uh, Ike Eisenhower. Everyone knew Eisenhower was going to win. Both parties offered him their nomination. Ike chose to run for the Republican nomination, so the Democrats put Adlai Stevenson on the ballot so that he wouldn't upset anyone. Uh, basically, he'd run, he'd make the party look good, and he'd lose with dignity. And he did that twice, 1952 and again in 1956. But no one thought that Bryan or uh, Stevenson were serious candidates who were going to win the second time they ran. They had already lost their elections, right? Um, now, Richard Nixon lost in, in 1960 and then came back eight years later to run, but not against Kennedy, right? By that time, obviously, JFK had been assassinated and uh, he ran against uh, the... <laughs> <laughs> Hubert Humphrey III. Uh, you know, Hubert Humphrey, uh, I was just thinking of the, the, there have been more Hubert Humphreys who have run for office since then, but Hubert Humphrey was not a great candidate uh, in that race. So that was a totally different thing, but he still won. So uh, former presidents running for office, not a terrible thing. In any case, um, looking at the electoral map, the Electoral College map, Donald Trump has a path to victory. Looking at minority voters and likely, you know, looking looking at the way the elections came out this time, he's very competitive in those states. So uh, he can make it a squeaker, right? He can make a go of it. There's no reason to think that he wouldn't. And at this point, I think when you look at it, it's a race to determine who's the lesser evil for a lot of your centrist voters. You know, before the covid lockdowns and all that stuff, which weren't necessarily Trump's fault. Uh, before all of that, we were riding high. There were good times. We, we reduced our wars. We had prosperity. People are going to remember those times. And Donald Trump talks about it all the time. And he talks about that positive image, right? Uh, he needs to get off the 2020 election, stop talking about the past, focus on the future, bright, shiny, positive future. Americans do not like negativity in politics. Uh, they want a positive vision for the future, right? In 2020, Biden sold them a return to normalcy as a positive image, and uh, people went for that narrowly, but they did go for it. So 
You know, the last thing, though, is uh, empathy. Joe Biden cuts a more empathetic figure. It's fake empathy. He doesn't actually care about anyone. He isn't actually empathetic, but he he's able to to strike a more empathetic character, a more empathetic figure. And uh, Donald Trump needs to be better about that. In his announcement speech, I thought he was right on point. He talked a lot about uh, his vision for the future. He stayed off the past for the most part, and uh, he came out swinging. But he also talked about how much his family's been attacked and hurt and his sons have been subpoenaed. And uh, he he showed a little vulnerability. And for Donald Trump, that's more empathetic. You can empathize more with him and it gives him the ability to strike a more empathetic figure for people as a victim of maltreatment. Right. It's not perfect, but I'll take it. Because Donald Trump needs to be more empathetic. And it's hard when he's a guy who's, you know, bellicose and brash and he's he's eager to, to scrap with people. And, you know, he, he makes, you know, calls people names and makes insults. And, you know, he fights, you know, a lot of people like that about him. But it comes off as mean sometimes. All right. With that, um, after the break, Ukraine and then in other news. <laughs> All right, on to Ukraine. So uh, this, there's been this fighting near Kherson, uh, which is a regional capital. This is a very important place. It's the first regional capital that the Russians took and uh, a very symbolic capture for the Russians. Nevertheless, they have retreated from it. There was talk of the Russians defending it to the last man, uh, street by street fighting, that kind of thing. And then the Russians decided to retreat. Strategically sound decision making, considering the Kherson is on uh, the left bank, if you will, of the, of the Dnieper River. It, it's just indefensible from a military point of view with the with Ukrainian forces closing in. There's no reason to try to keep it. You withdraw to the other side of the river, use the natural boundaries. This is. Because a lot of technology has been kind of neutralized in the war, this is much more, I don't want to call it static warfare. It's a much more old school type of war than we're familiar with. I mean, in a little bit more World War II, maybe World War I um, thinking, right? Not, 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 it's not really a high-tech, fast-moving war where, you know, lines are changing constantly and stuff's moving around. Uh, you know, we, we took uh, Iraq in the Gulf War in four days, a lot of fast moving pieces. Uh, the Republican Guard thought it was safe up in northern Kuwait uh, along the Iranian border over there. And uh, no, they weren't. They got the snot bombed out of them. And before they knew it, they were surrounded. So that's fast moving modern warfare for you. But that's not what we have here. And so it was good to see the Russians retreat, if for no other reason than it means that someone in the Russian hierarchy is thinking. Someone has a brain because you don't want to start making stupid mistakes. Uh, one of the big criticisms in the Second World War was there were several leaders who just pitched really dumb ideas. Now, Winston Churchill was a great war leader, but he also had a lot of bad ideas. And a lot of people have looked at, you know, some of his notions and just like, that was off the wall. It was ridiculous. Um, his effort to defend Greece for example, was disastrous, and uh, Crete especially 
uh, cost the the Royal Air Force, the Royal Navy, and the Army quite a bit of resources that could have been spent instead driving Italy out of Libya and Tunisia and securing North Africa. Now, if the if Germany had been thrown out of North Africa instead of trying to defend Greece, that would have been huge for the Allies. My point here is that Churchill had some bad ideas. Uh, Hitler was terrible with this because he'd, you know, tell his generals, no, do this instead. Don't do that. And he got into, in 1942, he went out and took control on the Eastern Front. And he's telling them, you know, take, a, you know, uh, you have to take Sevastopol. It's besieged. But now you have to take it. You have to take Stalingrad. And, you know, really dumb ideas. Bypass the cities and go get the oil, you know. The oil fields, like, that's what you're fighting for. That's what you want. First to deny them to the enemy and then cut off their, their access to the Caucasus and take that territory for yourself. Anyway, thankfully, we are all grateful that Hitler was kind of a, a military nincompoop. Thankfully, glad. <clears throat> the world is grateful to see him go. Okay, so, uh, but the Russian retreat from Kherson means that somebody is thinking. It's not just emotion and it's not just like, you know, stupid pig-headedness. Uh, at least somebody is thinking. So winter is coming. Uh, the Russians know this. They've been attacking power plants and uh, gas infrastructure in Ukraine, uh, in addition to firing indiscriminately into Ukrainian cities, attacking the civilian population. Uh, they're firing, you know, naval missiles and, you know, basically surface-to-surface -surface naval missiles and S-300 anti-air missiles. And the thing is, with a lot of these missiles, like, yeah, you you fire them, they go up and they come down and they go boom. That's like any munition would. Right. But they can't be targeted. They're not designed like cruise missiles or, or other surface to surface missiles to hit a very strategic, you know, a very specific target to to hit with precision. So they're firing them into apartment buildings uh, and such. And so there are a whole bunch of these flying into Kiev recently uh the apparently you know this this thing in poland apparently ukraine was firing uh missiles to defend you know, anti-missile missiles trying to intercept the missiles um uh, they were they were trying to shoot them down and apparently a couple of those missiles fell in poland about uh, 50 kilometers in and killed two poles that is very unfortunate and that's a really sad incident at first we were concerned that it was russia that had fired the missiles but Turns out it was an accident. Um, Ukrainian missiles went off course, but the um, you know this is this is the thing. I mean, they're they're firing their missiles, trying to keep Russian missiles from raining down on their cities, killing innocent civilians. Oy. So Russia's strategy is to bomb the civilian population and uh, destroy uh, the power infrastructure and such so that people will be frozen in the winter. So now Ukrainians are evacuating children. They're having to shut down schools. They're taking a lot of steps trying to um, trying to keep people warm as best they can. Now, that is a really heinous strategy uh, there. In, in addition to the mass graves at Izium that the Russians left behind, in addition to uh, the horrors wrought by the war in general, firing at civilian infrastructure and then firing at civilians indiscriminately like it's, you know, 1944. That's not acceptable. This is this is definitely not cool. Uh, an extremely amoral military campaign. So we know uh, who's who's in the moral right here. That much is fairly obvious. 
It's unbelievable to see people trying to draw moral comparisons. There aren't. Uh, the Russians are literally murdering people in cold blood. So there you go. That's the, back to the, you know, it's in the U.S. strategic interest to protect Europe. And uh, we have to protect Europe by defending Ukraine. Because if, if Putin gets Ukraine, he'll be going into Poland and Romania as soon as he possibly can. Um, it's just the, an unfortunate thing there. So winter is coming. And the winter months in Ukraine pose a serious problem. It gets very cold there as, you know, Russian winters. Well, it's the southern part of Russia. So we're not talking about, say, Arkhangelsk or Moskva. But we are talking about very cold temperatures in Ukraine. And uh, that, in addition to the civilian suffering that is going to result, that creates certain problems for the military. You know, it's extra cold. Equipment won't function. Uh, men get cold and injured and can't uh, fight. Uh, there are all kinds of problems that happen. Can these two continue fighting? Well, absolutely they can, and they probably will. There's been talk of uh, attempts at ceasefire, what have you. Unfortunately, ceasefires would be bad for Ukraine. At this point, Putin would love to create a static situation with him controlling part of the country and Ukraine controlling part of the country. And if he could make that last for the long term, then he could just keep what he has. Right. He doesn't lose any ground and he'll wait a few years and, and rebuild and rearm and prepare a little bit better. And he'll come back and try again because that's who Vladimir Putin is. That's what he does. Um, but Ukraine doesn't want that. They want to drive uh, they want to drive him out. And NATO backs Ukraine. NATO is with Ukraine. United States is part of NATO. United States is with Ukraine. Uh, we're going to push the uh, Russians out. So uh, what's going to happen in the winter? There's talk of uh, renewed fighting and, and offensive on the part of the Russians. Note that Putin did his massive mobilization and there are these what, what they're calling Mobix forces that are there now. These uh, mobilized uh, young people who are uh, kind of forced into the army. Uh, they're, they've been somewhat effective at slowing down Ukrainian offenses, but they haven't done a lot. Uh, there's talk of whole Mobix units having been completely destroyed. That Ukrainians, now this, some of this is unconfirmed. Some of it's been been seen to a certain degree and verified in part, but uh, that Mobix forces are being defeated is certain uh, that a number of those units have faced defeat. That entire units have been wiped out is something that Ukrainians are talking about, but hasn't been verified. So I'm, I want to be clear with you, my listeners, I'm not feeding you baloney, um, but there is talk of those units being wiped out. And I, I mean, it's not confirmed. I want to say that I'm more willing to believe that and the reason I am more willing to believe that is because these guys are untrained and they are vulnerable, right? They, they get a little bit of military training and thrown into war, right? It's, uh, it's unfortunate. Um, if Russia launches a winter offensive, that'll be interesting to see. Ukraine certainly can keep up the pressure during the winter. Um, if I were the U if I were Ukraine, I wouldn't launch an offensive, a big offensive. I keep the pressure on, but I wouldn't launch a big offensive during the winter. What I would do is sit back and let the Russians launch the offensive first. Once the Russians launch their offensive, you could pull back and wait for them to culminate. That is when their offensive runs out of steam. Then you can push them back after that. So, you know, if there's a winter offensive, let the Russians burn themselves out 
and then push back. Uh, but hopefully Ukraine will be able to recover its territory, drive Russia out, and defeat them completely. That will, one, weaken Russia. Two, eliminate Russia as a conventional military threat to anyone. Both of those very much in the U.S. national interest. And uh, yes, it leaves, you know, Russia still a nuclear power and will still have some status as a world power. But the Russians are just going to have to accept that, you know, nobody wants to hear it anymore. They're not as big, bad and tough as they'd like to think they are. So with that, um, uh, after uh, the break, I will be back with the Another News segment. And now for In Other News. In Other News is a Facebook page where you can follow and get the news that does not make headlines in the United States, or rather that, that basically doesn't get covered in the U.S. Uh, there are a lot of things that go on out there in the world, and if you want to stay informed about them, uh, then follow the In Other News page and uh, get the rest of the news that's out there. There are a lot of stories that you don't hear about. For example, this one. And, uh, you know, be honest now. Did you know that this was happening? A court in Berlin has ordered an election do-over in uh, the state of Berlin. In, you know, Germany has a number of states. They call them Lander. Uh, the, the Berlin Lander is a state, not just a city. It's kind of a city and a state in one. They have a mayor uh, who is directly elected. And <clears throat> when they held their elections back in uh, 2021, there were a number of problems uh, that were noted. Uh, ballots had the wrong candidates on them or were improperly printed. A number of ballots were photocopied in a hurry, which kind of made that weird. Uh, polling stations, some of them were open too late after polls had technically closed. Others were closed during the day when people should have been able to vote. There was a marathon scheduled the same day, which prevented uh, people from accessing polling booths in certain places. There were just a lot of irregularities that violated the law. And so uh, the court has ordered that uh, Berlin will redo their state elections. Now, this is the state court in Berlin, so they don't have any jurisdiction over federal matters. However, recently the Bundestag, the federal legislature, that is the, the main parliament in Germany, voted to redo the federal elections in Berlin as well. So that will may not affect the, the traffic light coalition and it won't really affect the Bundestag very much, but a, a seat may change hands here or there. In any case, the Germans want to make sure that the election is completely legit. Now, very few elections will actually be impacted by this uh, decision, as I mentioned before, but... Uh, the mayoral race is an interesting one there in Berlin. Uh, this one could be interesting. Uh, so incumbent mayor is uh, uh, Francisca Giffey, Giffey? <laughs> Francisca Giffey, uh, and she is facing the Green Party candidate, Bettina Yarash. Now, Yarash is a... Um, is an interesting candidate, the, the, the Green Party there trying to unseat the, the thing. But Giffey has a pretty, you know, she was reelected. It was kind of close. So it's going to be interesting to see how that goes. The Green Party has a chance to win that uh, important 
political office there in Germany and gain a little bit more uh, prestige, right? Now, uh, redoing elections in Germany is not unprecedented. It's happened before. Uh, in 1991, Hamburg uh, was forced to rerun its election. So it's happened. This has been done before. A couple of other countries have had elections rerun here and there because of uh, issues with the way the election was conducted. Uh, so, you know, it could happen. Uh, it happens here and there. But this is interesting to see this happening here. Um I just want to take a note at the end of this that given all of the improprieties in Arizona with, you know, voting machines being down, with counting machines being down uh, in conveniently in, you know, Republican leaning neighborhoods, uh, with all the problems that happened there, maybe Arizona's election should be rerun. Who knows? Uh, that's just not how we do things in America. It, 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 in America, it would be rather unprecedented. It's rare. There are a few local elections that are required to be redone here and there, but for the most part, state and federal elections are final. But it would still be nice if uh, if it were possible to make sure that uh, those who conducted elections improperly received, you know, the proper punishment for it, and those elections were rerun to ensure fairness. With that, that is another episode, a World News Report episode, but another episode nonetheless of Inside Israel News that is done and in the can. Uh, kind of sad now. It's, uh, it's great doing these. I enjoy it very much, and I hope uh, that you appreciate and enjoy them as much as I do. Uh, so please do rate the podcast. Five stars would be very much appreciated. If it's not perfect, uh, four would be good too. <laughs> much appreciated as well. Uh, if you rate, if you rate the podcast, it helps other people see it. Uh, so that that'd be appreciated. Any reviews, if you feel like writing those, that'd be awesome as well. Uh, please uh, find in Israel Inside Israel News on uh, Facebook and uh, Twitter. Those are the main two platforms that I'm active on, and. Uh, these episodes are on YouTube as well, uh, although it takes me a little bit more time to upload them there. Uh, you can also visit the website insideisrael.news and, of course, politicalvanguard.com. With that, as always, goodbye. Lahitrod. Peace out.